Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. So as you see, my name is Seth Scott. Um, my, my heart, my, my gifting, my passion is to be a conduit for the love of God to hurting people. So part of that is I provide clinical counseling, supervision, consultation in the community. Um, and then I also teach and lead in the clinical counseling program and in a PhD program that we're launching this fall, which we're really excited about. So as a, a counselor, as a professor of counseling, as a church leader, much of my time is spent walking with people in their suffering, right? My desire today, both in this session and through some practice stuff in the workshop this afternoon is to share how the gospel provides hope and victory in the midst of suffering, to provide integrated and holistic tools from a counseling perspective so that I can aid you in walking with those who are suffering amid this tension as well. That's part of this progression. And I appreciate the music that we've had this morning and how it, how it ties with this topic. So my title this morning is Victorious Christian Living Amid Suffering, Addressing the Tension between victory and suffering. So I'm gonna talk about this tension in just a minute, but first we have to kind of define victorious Christian living. It's the theme of this two-day conference, and if you wander around the campus, you'll see it on a rock on this campus because we have core values here. And as the CIU core, training, uh, core value training videos tell us as faculty here, victorious Christian living is this process and progression of living in the conscious and daily presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, so that you're walk, you walk toward being a new creation as you bear fruit in the gospel, of the gospel, through the gospel, by the Spirit in your life, on a daily basis for the rest of your life. It is pursuing the victor's crown so that we might hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, through the power of the blood of Christ with the crown of thorns and through his resurrection. So in its simplistic form, Many may consider or desire victorious Christian living to be kind of living above or beyond the struggles of this fallen world, right? And there is an aspect of victory from sin in this, but victory and suffering are not opposing terms, right? They don't exist on opposite sides of a spectrum. The process and purpose of sanctification, of our progression in living victoriously is not necessarily the absence of suffering and struggle but the increasing presence and closeness of relationship with God through Christ, right? Our fall into sin created a relationship problem. God created us in perfect relationship with him, in perfect relationship with one another, and in perfect relationship with ourselves and creation. At the fall, what happened was, a consequence of the fall is that our relationship with God became disrupted, distorted, and marred. Our relationship with one another became disrupted and fallen. Our sense of self and understanding of self became disrupted, and our struggle with creation continues. So before the fall, when they were naked and unashamed, after the fall, they sought clothing, coverage, protection, and they were ashamed. And that's the state that we live in today. We lost intimacy, connection, communion with God, with one another, with creation and ourselves. So victorious Christian living then is living in and through relationship, but our relationships are still marred by sin. 
We seek relationship with God by Christ through the Holy Spirit in this relationship. And when God looks at us, He sees us through Christ. And so God's relationship to us is restored. But our relationship to God is still marred by sin. We are an imperfect reflection of the glory of God. And our perception of self in relation to others in creation is still disrupted by sin. So the purpose of victorious Christian living then is to find a place of rest and a return to this path of flourishing and delight. The Hebrew word that describes this state of well-being is shalom. Theologian Cornelius Planiga describes shalom this way. He says it means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied, natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affair that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. So on this side of glorification, we persist like the child in this picture. We are secure in our relationship with our Father. We're growing in this relationship, demonstrating likeness to Christ and our Father every day, regardless of the situation around us. Right? This is from a, a game, board game called Dixit. Right? It was kind of a surprise when I pulled that card. This is how life exists. We look, when we look to our Father through Christ, we're safe, we're secure. Why does this matter? Well, this matters because victorious Christian living and suffering are not these dichotomous opposites in contrast or conflict with one another, but they exist in the reality of our present tension of the already and the not yet, the Saturday following the crucifixion, waiting for our own resurrection with Christ as the first fruits. So what is this victory? Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is victory. It's not apart from suffering, but amidst and through suffering. Let's, let's look at an illustration. Dr. Christman came with props, and so I did too. Um, I'm not going to smash mine with a hammer, though. My wife would be very upset. Uh, when we talk about suffering, Tim Keller gives this, this really helpful illustration. He's describing with his wife, Kathy, how they started to realize as they've reached the end of their ministry, the end of their life, they came to realize that at the heart of why people disbelieve and believe in God, of why people decline and grow in character, of how God becomes both less real and more real to us, is suffering. Lewis said it this way in The Problem of Pain, that, that God speaks to us in life, but uses pain and suffering as a megaphone to gain our attention. When the Kellers looked to the Bible to understand this deep pattern, they came to see that the great theme of the Bible itself is how God brings fullness of joy, not just despite, but through suffering. Right? Just as Jesus saved us, not in spite of, but because of what he endured on the cross. And so there's this peculiar, rich, kind of poignant joy that seems to come to us only through and in suffering. Keller goes on then to describe suffering as a furnace 
or a forge, saying that anything with that degree of heat is, of course, a very dangerous and powerful thing, but if used properly, it doesn't destroy. It put, things put into the furnace can be shaped, refined, purified, or even beautified. And this is the remarkable view of suffering. This is how we experience the victory in suffering, in that when we face and endure with faith, in the end, it can make us better, stronger, and more filled with greatness and joy. Suffering, Keller says, can actually use evil against itself. It can thwart the destructive purposes of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. So the example of a furnace or a forge or a kiln has special meaning to me uh, because my wife is a potter. She does ceramics, functional ceramics. She creates beauty out of mud. That might be why she married me. (laughs) So in order for mud to go from kind of useless, lump, formless clay to beautiful functioning pottery, it has to endure the fire of the kiln, at least twice, sometimes more. Right, so in this image, I have a process up here, but it starts even before this. And I consider bringing the whole works, but you know, there's only so much you can bring up here. Right, it starts with a, a lump of clay, and you can dig it out of the ground here. <laughs> it takes a little bit more work to prepare it, but it starts with this lump of clay, and my wife takes this lump of clay and either molds it with her hands or slaps it onto a wheel. And she takes this lump and begins to produce the vessel or product that she wants as the potter, right? She decides its function and its purpose, forming and molding this piece of clay into shape, right? So to make it simple, I'm gonna use the example of this mug, right? So she would form this mug, pull it out of about a pound of clay, pulling up the sides, and then it waits. She pulls it up and it sits, and it can sit for a week, two weeks, depending on the humidity. Once it is air-dried, and leather hard, she'll score it with a special knife tool so that she can add the handle to it, right? And then sometimes she adds emblems on it, which you see some in the picture there, and then it sits again for another couple days, right? And then when it's even harder, she takes another knife and cuts the bottom to make it sit nice and cleans up the sides. And then it can sit again for another week or so until it's completely dry. From there, then it goes into the kiln. And when it's placed in the kiln, it's fired in a bisque fire to 1,940 degrees. It sits in there at that temperature for 14 hours. We have to wait until it's done. The process has to completely cool down to room temperature again, which takes another 24 hours. And then we can unload it. And at that point, it's white, like on the left there. And she then washes it and prepares it for glazing. The interesting thing, though, about clay is what the clay looks like at this stage in its color and its, in its uh, sheen is not what it's going to look like in the end. So as my wife decides to glaze it, or paint it, as many people say, you glaze it, the color of the glaze that goes on and the color of the clay are not its end product. So what this means is she needs to know which type of clay it is and which type of glaze as the creator, as the potter, to make sure they fit together correctly. Right? There's a chemical process that I don't really understand. <laughs> Something happens there. Right? But as the, as the creator of this, she knows the relationship between the parts to make it work perfectly together. Right? And then from there, she loads it into the kiln again. And this is an example of a wood kiln. That's actually my wife stoking the fire there. 
It's no joke. Uh, and uh, they load it in, and they fire it again. A wood fire like this will fire for four to five days uh, at 2,220 degrees or so. Uh, and from there, it forms this product. Right? And the gloss color on this is the chemical process of the glaze forming glass. And now it's, it's still fragile, right? But, but it's more durable. You can hold it, you can drink from it, it holds liquid. The beauty of the piece can be seen once it's endured, the molding, the throwing, the weighting, the drying, the firing, all of these different processes. And it can be used for whatever purpose and intent the potter has in mind at the beginning. Right? This is my espresso cup in my office. I have another one that holds my toothbrush. Right? We have a lot of pottery, as you might imagine. <laughs> right? But we decide what it's for. And the interesting thing about pottery is you can see these parallels. Right? Pottery does not have a value in and of itself. Right? It's not the pot, it's not this mug that provides value. If you need a mug, you can buy one from Walmart for a dollar or two. When you look at the value of something like pottery, the value actually comes through the potter. Right? It's the fame and worth and glory of the potter that brings value to the piece. Right? So the purpose of this mug, enduring this suffering and struggle, is to bring glory to the potter, not to bring glory to itself. A beautiful piece of pottery produced by an unknown artist isn't valuable. It's the greatness of the artist, the worth and value of the creator, the potter, that brings glory, value, and worth to the piece through the process of the kiln. Right? So our process in suffering and victorious Christian living go hand in hand to demonstrate God's glory through us as his vessels. This is our experience. So let me to talk about this tension, though, and, and why in the world that we live in, we have some of this struggle. So Robertson McQuilkin uh, said, it seems easier to go to one extreme than the other than to stay in the center of biblical tension. So what is the tension on this issue of victorious Christian living and suffering? Well, I would argue from, again, Keller's explanation that he says that we live in a world that has a different view of suffering than the Bible does. A secular view of suffering argues that suffering should be avoided, prevented, or escaped at all costs because the purpose of life is happiness. And so anytime there's an interruption to your pursuit of happiness, you try to avoid it, remedy it, get rid of it as quick as possible. Right? That's the goal, that's the goal in life. The catch in this is that because what we would say from a sin perspective is suffering will occur either because of our own problems consequences because of sin in the world, because of the struggle in our relationship as fallen beings, or the relationships from others in our past that produce consequences, we will suffer. It's a matter of course. And so if our only goal in experiencing suffering from a secular view is to get rid of it, avoid it, or prevent it, we end up numb, lost, and seeking pleasure in addiction in this cycle of constant avoidance and escape. And that's what we see in the world around us. And as we come to view suffering as an interruption more and more, we seek escape more and more. We end up avoiding our own lives. We end up avoiding the people around us because in the same moment that we need relationship with people, the tension exists where people cause harm. Intimacy requires risk. Connection and relationship requires risk. We can be hurt. 
Just like this mug, in order to be useful, has to go through the kiln, we have to experience the risk of being hurt in relationship. We have to be vulnerable, naked, and unashamed to return to that perfect shalom. So if the West's highest view of, of life is happiness and avoiding suffering, a lot of people who go to counseling, in secular counseling, that's what they get. Right? So I would argue as a licensed counselor that this is a wrong view of life, not an error in counseling. Counseling is not the problem. It's the worldview of the counselor that's the problem. Right? A Christian view on this is not that we are designed, our purpose in life is not to make us happy, but to make us holy. To conform us to the image of Christ in victory through the process of the kiln. Christians believe that suffering is often unjust and disproportionate, but in light of the cross, suffering becomes purification, not punishment. Right? The Christian understanding of suffering is dominated by this idea of grace. The Christian doctrine of suffering asks for more than a patient tolerance of suffering because the pain and suffering of life fix our spiritual vision on central spiritual goods of the redemption of Christ. So a victorious Christian living is not safety, security, and provision to live your best life now, right? It's being strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. So this whole process is a process of relationship with one another and with God. Right? This is where the training in our counseling program comes in. We're not necessarily seeking to alleviate suffering and to pursue positive feelings and happiness, but we want to learn how to sustain in relationship with God and others. We want to, if possible, remove the consequences of your own stupidity and suffering <laughs> and prevent future stupidity and suffering. But we acknowledge that frequently God is working through that process and our job is not to just remove it because you're gonna end up right there again if we don't. Right, so we wanna identify and support people through relationship to respond as whole people seeking wholeness. Our minds, our emotions, our biology, our spiritual selves and our relationships. There's a perfect example that aligns well with this in scripture. We see the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel 3. Right? King Nebuchadnezzar just got finished forging a 90-foot statue of himself. It's layered in gold. It must have been a giant furnace or kiln to make something like this, because that's what's necessary. Right? It required all people to bow to his image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought before the king, and they were accused of not bowing down. But they were given another opportunity to bow down or for the kiln to be stoked in this fiery furnace. And they replied, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer to you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So where, where is victory in this? Right? I would prefer the experience of victorious Christian living in their strong statement of faith and deliverance from the furnace and just kind of leave it at that. Right? I believe that God will deliver this and then just like walk away. Right? Name it and claim it. But the relationship with God that they have that drives their behavior includes the trip through the furnace. Right, you know the rest of the story. This response infuriates Nebuchadnezzar, so he stokes the furnace seven times hotter. 
It kills the guards with the intensity of the heat as they throw the three men in. The faith of these three men, their trust in God, is exemplified in their complete protection. Not even the smell of smoke, right? The presence of another in the fire with them. The witness of their faith through suffering produces a complete reversal for the king. When he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. There is no god who is able to rescue in this way. God used their experience in victory through suffering. Romans 8 explains this in the same way. He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We don't have to walk into that furnace alone. Right? They went in trusting that God was present and God showed up. That's what victory is. That's what victorious Christian living looks like. Well, what does this look like in my area and working in people with mental illness? Right? It's, honestly, it's kind of easy just to say, well, just, just continue. Right, just walk. God will be there with you. But when Jesus left in the high priestly prayer and he anticipated his leaving, he said something astounding to me. He didn't say it to me. He said it and it was astounding to me. He said, uh, I have to go because if I don't go, I can't send my helper to you. Right, so what that means is even if Jesus were here today, he is more present in this room because his spirit lives inside of all of us. Right, when people say, and clients have said this to me, said, like it would be so different, I just need God to give me a hug. Right? I just need Jesus to, to be present. And I say, he is. He is present. He's told us to be present on his behalf, to be his hands and feet in the world around us. And this is critical for people that are suffering, for people who are walking through. God did not have to, to present a fourth person in that furnace for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to know that he was present. He didn't do it for them, right? He did it for Nebuchadnezzar to see him at work. Mark Mayfield wrote a book called The Path Out of Loneliness, and he explains how the deepest desire of every human being is to be seen, valued, and loved, right? And this concept of being seen is interesting in Scripture because both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the first person in the Old Testament to provide a name to God is Hagar, and she calls him the God who sees. In the New Testament, when Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, it's the woman at the well. And she says to him and to the village, he sees me, he knows who I am and what I've done, and yet he sees me, right? This is, a, this is who our God is, and this is how he lives out in the world around us, through us, is we have to be people who see. Just as we talked about earlier in making disciples, we have to be able to detect people and identify who is walking and who is working and how God is working through them. Attachment is this kind of bedrock of relationship. And there's a chemical hormone in our brain that's associated with this, oxytocin. It's released when we're in intimate relationships. And so when we, when we recognize that God made us holistic, God made us complete in our biology, in our social relationships, in our emotions, in our spiritual life, all of those things influence one another. Right? D.A. Carson once said at a seminar I was at, he said, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. <laughs> right? And we talked about this some yesterday. Is our physical bodies 
contribute to our spiritual lives. And if we are worn down, if we are isolated, if we are alone, if we don't have social relationships, we're going to experience symptoms of depression and anxiety. The research demonstrates over the past few years that loneliness actually precedes anxiety, depression, and addiction. Right? Addiction, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction from the research is connection and relationship. Right? People who experience addiction are avoiding escaping or numbing something else. And if we can connect people in relationship with God through us as his followers, as his body, we can address the issues of mental illness. Right? Siegel states that in order to develop a secure relationship and attachment, you have to have three components to feel seen, safe, and soothed. So this question that we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask the people around us, are, are they seen? What does that actually mean? What does that look like? Jesus said in uh, John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the interesting thing about the disciples is like they, they were a ragtag group. Uh, most of our churches today, we kind of have affinity with a lot of the people that we interact with. Right? We get along, we share common interests. This not, would not have been true of the disciples. Jesus seems to have intentionally picked opposing character traits. Right? Let's see, how can we get, let's get someone who wants to kill anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, because they, they don't believe in the zealot purpose of, of Israel, and a guy who's basically sold out to the Romans. Let's pair those two guys up, that should work. Right? We have, we have guys called the Sons of Thunder who try to call down fire from heaven on people that Jesus was seeking to minister to. Right? We haven't, I haven't had those church meetings yet of like, what should we do about these new people? How about we just call down fire on them? That should work. No, we don't, we don't do that. And yet, the thing that Jesus, after three and a half years to build his church, they had him. They unified on him. And so one of the things when Jesus says that they'll know we are disciples by our love for one another is that the church in America today, in my opinion, does a really bad job at doing anything unique or distinct in our love for one another. Because actually the world around us does a better job at loving one another around our unity. Right? I, I'm not a sports fan. I, I just don't really care. Uh, but <laughs> I spend too much. I just do other things. But... Yeah. <laughs> so, but... Clemson fans or Gamecock fans have more affinity, more unity, more love, more passion together than most churches in America on a Sunday morning. Right? And so if the world, if we say to the world, like, well, you should join our fellowship, you should be part of our community because it's different and unique. When it's not, then we don't exist in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? The thing that will make the church unique is that we experience unity and love for one another across our differences and diversities, right? That we're able to say, yesterday, I would have killed you or run away from you or been killed by you. And today, we can worship the same God, right? That's what makes a difference. And so when we see mental illness, one of the hallmarks of mental illness today, one of the reasons it's increasing is because we are a lonely people. Right? And the church has the solution to that through the power of the Holy Spirit, but also relationally, socially, biochemically. 
We can engage people's minds with oxytocin by connecting in relationship, but it takes risk. Right? So we need to be different. We need to be unique. Our bodies are, are broken and groaning for this day of redemption, and it's only going to get worse. Right? The epigenetics of disease mean that as we experience mental illness, our children will experience it. As the world around us eats the wrong foods and contributes to poor nutrition in our minds and our brains and our bodies, it's going to get worse. Right? But we have hope because this is not our home. This is not it. Right? We go back to this clay analogy. We recognize that, that God can use all of this to form us, to conform us to his image. Right? Paul uses this same illustration in 2 Corinthians 4. He explained that the light of the gospel in our lives persists as treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. God is not manifest in place of mental illness. God's presence is manifest in many people with the presence of mental illness because we are not broken, we are not destroyed, we are not, we are not crushed. Right? He is still present in us. In our pain and in our suffering and our fear, the message of scripture is clear. God does not abandon us or forsake us, but remains with us, guides us and suffers with us. We find that scripture is also clear about the difficulties and suffering we'll encounter in this life. But it's in and through these difficulties, not in spite of them, that God promises never to leave or forsake us. Right? Our job in working with people is not to diagnose or to reduce the person to some biological health issue that needs a cure, but we need to listen to their stories. Right? There's a great meme that I just shared with my psychopathology class. Uh, I put it on the online thing, and it's, it's this thing that says in the DSM, which is our, our diagnostic manual, it says, like, don't diagnose in the first session. And then there's a picture of like Thor like making this funny face, and it says, like, insurance companies. Right? Because insurance companies expect you to diagnose in the first session to bill. And so in our culture, in our world, we have this tension of like, you are defined by your categories. You are defined by the labels. And it's either labels that people are applying to you or labels that you're applying to yourself. And we need to push against that as the church. Right? We need to see people the way that God made them who may be struggling with mental health problems or physical problems or health, other aspects of health, but it's part of their journey that God is using as he conforms them to his image, as he molds them and shapes them and allows them to go through the kiln. Right? We want to walk with like the fourth figure who appeared with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God has called us to do that. Keller closes his book on pain and suffering with this. He says, to rejoice in God means to dwell on and remind ourselves of who God is, who we are, and what he's done for us. Sometimes our emotions respond and follow. And when they do, this is, this is great. But sometimes they don't. So we need to not define rejoicing as something that precludes feelings of grief or doubt or weakness or pain. Rejoicing and suffering happens within suffering. Here's how it works. The grief and sorrow drive you more into God. It's just as when it gets colder outside, the temperature kicks the furnace higher through the thermostat. Right? Similarly, the sorrow and grief drive you into God and show you that the resources you never had, yes, you feel the grief, but you look to Jesus. Right? You will see him. So what does this look like in relationship amid suffering? So when firing pottery, as this picture of this is the end of a firing in a wood kiln, 
When the fire is at its hottest point, 23, 2400 degrees, it needs more people to manage. Right? You have to keep feeding this fire. And in order to produce a beautiful, positive result, it has to sustain that temperature over a long period of time. Right? It requires people to work, to engage together. And this is part of our journey as well. Where we are not called to be the lone ranger in our Christian lives. It doesn't even work that way. Most of scripture in the New Testament is written to groups, not to individuals. Right? Victory should permeate our outward creating action in our relationships and our context. As we walk in victory, it means we are gathering people around us who can join us and sustain us in this process. Right? It's not just about victory over personal sin, but sin in the world and promoting the advancement of the kingdom. Right? We're often too individualistic in our theology and our thinking. Right? Victory, walking in victory, is collective, is cooperative. Right? God's justice always should move towards action. God's justice flows from God's love and his desire for righteousness. Right? So in order to be truly loving, we not only have to call evil what it is, but we actually have to use our position to help alleviate the suffering and promote the dignity of those who suffer. Right? We should advocate for justice. We should understand the injustices that are experienced by marginalized groups or individuals. We should work to eradicate injustices in organizations in the lives of individuals. But we have to recognize that our experience of suffering uh, is not all of the same. Right? So we joke, you know, that I've seen lots of, like, you know, as men, if I get a cold, like, I'm out. Right? I'm done. Uh, my wife actually did something to her shoulder and can't move her right arm at all right now. Um, and she, like, is still doing stuff, right? I'd be like, call me in a week, right? All of our, our pain for physical suffering is different, but our pain for, for life and suffering is very different as well. God has called us all to different things, right? And so what that means is we have to use the position that we're in to capitalize on the strengths that God has provided and the relationships that he's given us to acknowledge and address the suffering of others. And this is part of what our counseling program seeks to do. One of the things in our counseling program that's really important is as a counselor, you as the person of the counselor are the means by which God produces change often in the individual, right? God works through relationship and connection through a person. And so our first year in our program actually is spent helping the person kind of work through their own stuff, right? We all have stuff. And a lot of times people go into counseling because either they had counseling earlier and it was horrible and they want to correct that or they had counseling earlier and it was great and they want to, they want to replicate that, right? That, that's why a lot of people do the things that they do. And so for us, we want to be able to walk, walk with people in this process and walk both to and through the furnace with people. And that's the work of, of many of you in church as pastors, right, is to reside in that furnace with your people and to not take on the, the stink and smell of the fire yourself, right? To be able to be present and anchored in who God is so that you can be in that moment in their suffering and join them in their suffering without being overwhelmed by their suffering, right? And that, that requires some training, some practice, sufficiency in Christ, right? My tendency, probably our tendency, is to withdraw from those who are suffering, right? You see someone like, if there's blood squirting, like, I'm probably going to go the other way, right? Emotionally, people are bleeding all of the time, all around us, right? And, and we sometimes view suffering as contagious, 
Right? One of the things I love about the difference between the Old and the New Testament, um, in the Old Testament, holiness was really fragile. Right? You had to be really careful. All of the laws were designed to keep you from becoming unclean because cleanness was just this like little ember that we had to, we had to light. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus like break that whole thing apart. They were still afraid of contagion. But Jesus said, instead of uncleanness infecting cleanness and making it unclean, unholiness infecting holiness and making it unholy, he said, everything that I interact with will become clean and holy. Right? He, can, he could have a woman who's unclean reach out and touch his clothes, and as she's reaching, her faith makes her clean. Right? So he still fulfills the law and doesn't become unclean himself, but the contagion of his holiness spreads. And so as we seek to emulate Christ in the world around us, to experience the victory of his walk, we should not be afraid of the contagion of suffering. But we should walk in newness of life so that the contagion of the hope and glory of God comes through us to those around us. So may we seek to stand with those who suffer. Right? Demonstrating how victory comes through struggle, not in spite of it. And demonstrate the love of God for the world and to the world in our purification so that we can become like Christ in all things. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge that we are broken and, and fragile vessels. Uh, we live in a world that is overwhelming, that is fighting us on every turn, that seeks to conform us to its, its image, Lord. And, and so we pray, as Romans 12 says, that we might instead be transformed in the renewing of our minds, that we might walk in newness of life, we might emulate your love for the world as your ambassadors to the world, and that those who suffer and struggle might be made new through connection and relationship, through progression and focus on who you are through your son and on the healing that comes in that, and in walking in the midst of that struggle and, and through that struggle and with that struggle until you return. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.